Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Nomad Strength Show and one that I am incredibly excited to bring you today. It is not very often that we get somebody on the show that is often referred to as the Michael Jordan of whatever it is that they're in. And today, I am joined by the legendary Jim Shockey. Uh, If you followed anything in the outdoors world, hunting world, conservation, for the last several decades, Jim is somebody that you know who. And I was incredibly excited to talk to him today because he's written a novel, and this is his actual first novel. He's a a super accomplished writer in the outdoor world. He's done thousands of articles and written so much stuff, but he tackled this novel, and it's something that he's been working on for 25 years now since he first had the idea. And I wanted to hear the story about how it came to be. So in this uh, interview, we talk a lot about his writing process and his process for getting this book made, why it took 25 years to make this thing. And he has a really important and I think awesome perspective on having a story to tell. And that's how this thing came to be is he lived these experiences. And if you followed him for any amount of time, you know he has been all over the world. He has hunted and done everything in all of the craziest places on this planet. And so he has lived these experiences. And those experiences have given him an amazing story that he has created in this novel, Call Me Hunter. I was really excited to talk to him today, and I can't wait for you guys to listen to the episode. Go check out. You still have a week from the release date of this podcast to go pre-order the book, Call Me Hunter. The link is going to be in the show notes. Go pre-order the book. It's awesome. I'm telling you, it's a thriller. It's it's honestly kind of in its own category as we talk about how it came to be in the book. But please, go pre-order the book. I hope you enjoy this podcast. And without further ado, here's my conversation with Jim Shockey. Alright everybody, welcome back to the Nomad Strength Show. I have a guest today I've been really excited to talk to for a long time. I've followed him for a long time and I've got the new book right here that I've been uh, going through for the last couple of weeks and I'm really excited to talk to him about it, but I've got Jim Shockey here today. So Jim, thank you for making time today. I'm really I'm really excited to talk to you. No, it's my, my pleasure. Yeah. I've been looking forward to it as well. Awesome. Um, I kind of want to... I kind of want to start with the book because of the way that it was presented where you said this was a novel 25 years in the making. And I'm kind of curious, like, why did it take 25 years? Like, how does that idea spawn so long ago? And how did that journey bring it to like, where now it's here finally? Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I started when I was 10 years old, I knew I would have a museum mm-hmm. and, I, and I started on that pathway. So the the outdoor things I've done, you know, gathering. A lot of it was cultural as well to bring the pieces back for the museum. Uh, But I also, at 10 years of age, started my first novel. I knew I'd be a novelist in my life. Okay. But I I realized real quick, I mean, I could collect seashells and insects and pretty rocks, fishing lures (laughs) I could steal from my dad's and my grandfather's tackle box for the museum. But but writing, right? Writing is... You have to have a story to tell, and, and at ten years of age, I mean, I, I got about page eight, and, and horrible, you know, I, I just <laughs> right. can't. Get it. But but I, um, 
<clears throat> I, I live my life with that intent. I have no problem setting goals that are half a century away. Um, and I, I sat down in about 91 to 93, somewhere in there, and I, I, I penned the first words, the first you know, words of uh, mm -hmm. Dragos Dead. I hunted them down and I killed them mm -hmm. back in, in that long ago. So, <coughs> excuse me, 30 years ago. And, and I sat there and, and, I mean, I'd lived, you know, I'd done a lot by that point in my life. Yeah. But um, not enough yet. I actually realized again that, no, mm -hmm. no I'm not ready yet. Yeah. And there, <clears throat> there's two ways you can you can write as an or become an author of a novelist. You come out of university or wherever you, and, and start writing, and, and that's, you know, you imagine places, and maybe you go there to research it and... Um, you know, or or you just live life, mm. live life, and and live out on the edge of 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 where the average person out there, you know, the everyday living. I mean, you live sort of on the outlying areas, and and mm -hmm. uh, and that you you create a story. I mean, you live a story. So eventually, in two thousand nineteen, October, Mozambique was my last international trip, and I I determined that and. 2016 mm. because I knew I was booked out that far in advance and if I didn't you know cut it at some point and sit down and start writing the story it would never get done so so 2019 November I I sat down and, and picked up those words again Javago's dead I hunted him down and I killed him and I mm. started writing the novel that that I had now lived enough to have a story to tell so I, I, I that was my way of writing I needed I, you know, maybe I don't have a great imagination, so I just needed to live it and instead of making it up. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's one of the really cool things about even how the book is introduced at the beginning where you talk about, like, there's ways to corroborate a lot of the stuff that's in the book as things that actually happen by talking to the people that you reference. Or, you know, it's like you kind of intentionally blur the line of, did this actually happen or did it not? And, like, I think the only way to do that, like you said, is to actually have lived and been experiencing those types of things for your whole life prior to that. Yeah, and that, that's, that's, you know, I, I wanted it to be like quicksand. I think mm -hmm. I say that in the preface. Mm -hmm. I, I want it, you know, if you struggle against <clears throat> the suspended reality and, and you try and prove, or this can't be true, this can't have happened, you're going to find out it did happen. This happened, this happened, this happened, and you, and you struggle, struggle, and you just get deeper and deeper into that novel's mm -hmm. hold. It's it's um, I mean it, it it's an autobiographical abstract fictional thriller and there's no category for that. <laughs> right, it's Jack Carr, you know the, the only the dead and the terminalist. He yep. he read it and that's what he said. He said I don't know where, where would you put this novel? Yeah, uh, because it's not just a fictional thriller because there's too much reality. Well, it's not an autobi mm -hmm. it's not an autobiography either because. Because there's some fiction in there, and uh, yeah. you know, I kind of tongue in cheek and you know, wink, wink, say that um, you know it's eighty percent fact, and the twenty percent that would put anybody in jail—that's that's the fiction part. Right. Keeps you safe <clears throat> too throughout. <laughs> keeps you yeah, a little yeah, bit safer too throughout know, a lot of that. Yeah, but but I would I, and I say in the preface, I would love somebody yeah. with unlimited funds to dig deep. I hire every private detective you want and, mm -hmm. and just see what you end up with. And there, there's layers of layers of layers. You you dig that, you're going to end up here. And you start digging there, you're going to end up here. 
and and it's uh, and it's because I've lived that life. I mean, I've lived that, and I say, you know, mm-hmm. I didn't have a story to tell, but now I do, and this is my story. Call me so, so from that time you wrote that first line, you know, th- almost thirty years ago or or so when it was, from that time to actually sitting down to write the book, were you? writing it in your head throughout that whole time or was it like I sit down and now I remember and I can craft the story from there or like in those decades or you're like ooh I gotta I gotta make sure we we put this in the story when I get to it type of thing no because because I was living it so yeah. so it was and, and so if I would sit on a mountain um, you know say in there in the bamboo forest uh, Urubu high bamboo forest in mm. uh, Ethiopia waiting for a mountain yala I was I was writing it if I was sitting in a customs office in Russia waiting for permits to get my firearms into the country, you know, hours and hours, you know, I mean, it's mind-numbing, but it's not if you're writing the novel. <laughs> right. So, so I, I, I the, and the story was, I was living the story, so it was yeah. not, uh, you know, I, I just had to be thinking, how, you know, how do I, what words, how do I craft it, how do I form it into a novel mm. where it's interesting? And I, uh, you know, I, again, I kind of half-joking say that, I could have written the first hundred pages when I did finally sit down to write. I could have written the first hundred pages watching TV. Yeah, I could, I could have been watching Laverne and Shirley reruns and, and been writing the novel because I'd already written it. It was yeah. like, it was like being. It in was a just prison. a matter of getting it on the page and getting it or on yeah. the screen or whatever, actually getting it out there at that point. Yeah, and, and you know, there's structure to a novel, and, and uh, you, you know, it's got to have some sort of a format that that is yeah. interesting for people. So. And I, I also I picked um, <clears throat> excuse me I picked uh, um, you know third person omniscient to to write from that perspective but also second person which is yeah. not done in, in novels it's somebody telling somebody else in the novel it, it's it's done in autobiography so again it just blurring even the perspective like, you know is it is it real or not and, and it, it's uh, it'll be interesting to see because it's. You know, you can't sit at a beach and read this thing and think you're gonna, you know, <laughs> right. get up two pages a night while you're in bed just before sleep. I mean, you gotta, you gotta focus on it because it, it's, uh, yeah, it's it's not it's not that it's complicated, but it's, it's you know, Da Vinci Code, yeah, um, you know, kind of Da Vinci Code meets yes. Girl with the Dragon Tattoo meets Hunger Games meets uh, <laughs> Mueller's Sense of Snow, a European novel. So, yeah. So it's you know, it, it's um, yeah, it would be interesting to see if. If people say, are they, if they're ready for that kind of a, like mm-hmm. I say, it's almost a new genre. That's so cool because I actually I took it with me uh, last week when I was when I was going on elk hunt, and so I was reading it in by my lantern in my camper at night, and uh, I I almost had like that exact same sense. I'm like. If I start, if like I keep going, I'm gonna need to keep going and for like a few more hours and just dive down. And I'm like, I had to make a choice to put it down every night because I'm like, I I'll stay up and just keep doing it because I'm like, I gotta, what is this? You know, I gotta I gotta figure this out type of thing, which was cool. Yeah, you know, funny story about that. I <clears throat> Willie Robertson from Duck Duck Commander. Mm-hmm. You know, Willie, I've known Willie heck since he was little. And uh, I, I'd sent him an advanced reader copy, same same thing you would have received. Yeah. And uh, I got the Outdoor Channel got a hold of me. They, we were doing I don't know contract negotiations for our shows, and they told me <clears throat> they just had a meeting with Willie for you know, I don't know what he's got going on with them, but you know this is the top people of the Outdoor Channel, mm-hmm. and, and Willie Robertson. I mean he's he's big time. Yeah. And 
they were in the business meeting and he finally just said, look, I got to go. I got to, meeting's over. And they said, what, what's going on? He said, I'm reading Call Me Hunter and I'm in the last, <laughs> he said, I've, got, I've got one more chapter to go. I have to know how it ends. <laughs> yeah. So this is the Outdoor Channel guys telling me this story. So they, they're sitting there and whoosh, Willie's gone to go finish off Call That's Me Hunter, the, the last few pages. So he knows how it ended. He he uh, got a hold of me too and told me that he, he loved it. He wants to see it as a, TV series, he, he's quite yeah. excited. Yeah, so so it's it's yeah, it'll 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 catch you and and to figure out what's going on. I mean, you you got to mm -hmm. kind of focus a little bit. The the process of actually sitting down and writing it, like you know, you said you had the story, you could have written the first hundred pages, you know, <clears throat> in your sleep essentially, but putting together that structure and I mean, having this be the first novel going through this process like how was that process of getting it into this form from your head like was it different than you thought was it frustrating was it good was it all those things no, above no i i honestly loved every second of it jack cool. car and i talk about it and yeah same thing the, the process is is really really fun i mean in, mm -hmm. in a kind of a uh, you know you know self-flagellate your, yourself kind of way because mm -hmm. it, it's uh, because it's a lot of work. I mean, yeah. it, you know, you, you have to write it. And, I, you know, then I, like, I'd write every day religiously from, you know, four in the morning till 10 or noon, and then I'd go get some exercise. Mm -hmm. But, but you know, then the next day I'd pick up what I wrote, and, and I would rewrite that. So I wouldn't start actually writing anything new until I'd rewritten what I wrote the day before. And then the next day, the same thing again, whatever is new. And sometimes it'd be three days before I wrote new words because to get yeah. each word and, and, and it, you know, writing is, is like, a, it's poetic. And it has yeah. to be the right word. And every word you can't waste, to me, the reader's time or, <clears throat> you know, if it's not the perfect word, then it's not the perfect word. Right. Find the perfect word. And if it's not, doesn't flow exactly, it's got to, it's got to flow and it, it, so, so I, you know, write, rewrite, write, rewrite, write, rewrite. I probably did well, at least six, you know, before I got to the end, mm -hmm. I probably did six rewrites already in the process of writing it. Um, but, but then, so now you've got a manuscript, you know, 450 pages or whatever it is. And, and I had to, you know, I, I mean, is it good? You have to get some friends to look at it. Our son, he said, Dad, there's no ending and it's too long. You know, you know, he said I'd cut it mm -hmm. back to whatever ninety pages, one hundred and ninety pages. Uh, you know, so you get input from people, and you know, other people loved it the way it was, and you, you you have to kind of file it all and say, okay, is there anything I can change? So I did another rewrite. But now you've got a manuscript that a few people have read, friends, and you know they're going to blow smoke because they're friends, <laughs> right? Uh, but is it good enough? And and right. so. You can self-publish at that point. You'll get somebody to, to copy edit it and self-publish it. That's easy. And, and you know, I mean, I'd sell 5,000 copies easily, um, mm -hmm. which is good, but I didn't want that. I, I know I, I wanted, I, I like to compete. I hate handicaps in golf because I want to go head to head with Tiger. And I want to see how good I have to, how much do I have to improve to actually, you know, I don't want to have a handicap where him and I are equal. I know I'm not equal. But, but uh, you know, so writing was the same thing. Is this novel good enough to make it in the big leagues? Uh, but you can't get it. You can't even play in the big leagues until you have a, a uh, agent. They, because the big publishers, 
won't accept a manuscript. Sure. Unsolicited. It's not going to happen. And then, you know, agents don't accept unsolicited manuscripts either. You know, so, so you kind of have to ignore that, that rule and, and give them an unsolicited manuscript. Mm-hmm. And it, it's interesting, my um, Fedekovich, uh, Esther Fedekovich, she, she, you know, she gets a thousand unsolicited manuscripts a month. So she's wow. got 13 readers that, that read the manuscripts that come in. She can't read them all, and she doesn't mm-hmm. want to waste her time with you know, books and her novels and manuscripts that aren't good enough. Um, so, so you have to get through those 13 readers before you ever get to the agent. So they've got to recommend it. Then the agent has to actually read it and like it. Well, you know, a novel isn't like watching a half-hour TV show. You, you know, it takes eight hours, yeah. 10 hours, whatever it takes to read it. Um, but, but I made it through the 13 and made it, you know, to, through Esther and she, <laughs> we did FaceTime like this and, uh, her, she had her, it was pretty funny. She had her paper from all the 13 writers in front of her and, and uh, she said you know she said, i have to ask you this first question because she didn't know me mm-hmm. she said did you actually write this and like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah and I, and I think it's because i mean here you know cowboy hat right right hunter guy outdoorsman i mean how can you possibly actually be sentient and be able to put, put a sentence <laughs> together and, and you know it, it's not just a straight hunting story um you know, it's a novel, and it's a, not an easy, it's a fairly complicated plot line, you know, with anti-heroes and yeah. protagonists and antagonists. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, she, uh, that was her first question. And, and you know, I said, well, you know, of course I wrote it. <laughs> and, and then she said that there are 13 writers that said, sign this guy, he's the next great writer. So that's what it that's said. Awesome. She showed it. Yeah, so, so now I had an agent. And yeah. I, maybe everybody out there is getting bored with this, but uh, if you want to be a novelist, this is the process that you're going to, to get yeah. it, you know, to this to this stage right now. now you, yep. you have the art. This is actually the first of the uh, printed hardcover versions that will be on the bookstore shelves. Uh, I just received my box of them the other day. They gave me 50 that I can give away or sell yeah. or whatever. But um, you now you've got an agent. She then has to go to... The marketplace the big publishers and try and sell it to them she mm-hmm. believes in it simon and schuster gets a thousand manuscripts from agents and unsolicited manuscripts a week That's so insane. you know they don't get read they don't they just sit there on people's desks and eventually and they have their readers and they it goes through that so so it was um, a year at least wow um, from when Esther and i started trying to the because it's almost literary you know, it, it, that's it. Kind of, it's 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 literary because it's a different, you know, genre. It doesn't fit in one of the commercial genres. Yeah. Um, she sent it to ten literary publishers, and uh, not one of them read it. Not not one read it. They all sent it back because what they did was they Googled Jim Shockey. Right. And 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 they this is you know basically, I'll paraphrase, but every single one of them said he can't write literature. You know, this is not. It can't be literature. We didn't bother reading it because he's he's too much of a celebrity, is what they said. Mm. You know, and I, I don't think that's what I am at all. I'm not. I'm just a guy. But, yeah. Um, too much. You know, social media following over you know 1.2 million. You you're just not. You can't possibly write literature. Sure. And, you know, my takeaway from that was well, you you got to be a down and out professor of English lit that you know is committing suicide every second week and you know depressed i don't know i right. guess that's what you have to be to to be to write literature so then we had to um 
re reconfigure our marketing plan and and uh, and attempt to get it into the commercial fiction, you know, world, which yeah. which is very very difficult. Like I say, Simon and Schuster gets so many books, and um, you know, I wanted Emily Bessler, who's the best editor. She's the rock star. She's discovered, you know, many, she does many Jack's books, books, doesn't she? Yeah, yeah, <clears throat> she, yeah, she, she, she's. Uh, She's she's the real deal. I mean, she's just so talented. Uh, she yes. recognizes talent. That's her job. Um, and I wanted her, you know. But of course, try and get a book to Emily Bessler. So yeah. it took a year. And and finally, you know wow. what? Jack Jack Carr. It was Jack Carr that actually got a hold of her and said, "Listen, you you know you got to read this thing." And um, and she did. And then it was you know, then the work started. <laughs> you know. Her and I did four rewrites, like complete rewrites. And I, I've read the book out loud to myself uh, once, read it to Louise twice, just because that's when you pick up mistakes and little things. And four rewrites. like, And, and she made me give it an ending. She said, you can't leave it a cliffhanger. Now, I always had it as, <laughs> as three books because like, you can't do a thousand. That was going to be books. one of my questions. Was was this the plan like to, yeah. Oh, yeah, to build off of it for a series? Yeah, well, because it, it, you couldn't tell the story in that short, you know, one novel yeah. time. Uh, so, but I left it as a cliffhanger. So, you want to find out what happened in this novel? Get the second one. Right. And she said, "Ruin you, you, you're you're uh, <laughs> you're a first time novelist." She, she said, "If you're Stephen King, you can do that." Yeah. Or James Patterson, you can you could leave a cliffhanger, and the readers will buy the next one. She said, "You do this to the readers on your first one, they're." You know they'll never they'll hate you they'll never pick up a book i mean gotta tie up some of the ends at least <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so i actually had to write the first four chapters of the second book and tack them on to the first book just so oh, it kind wow. of wraps it up yeah in a bit of a package so there's yeah. there's an ending but it's it's there's an opening there that yeah you know the ending is uh it sets it up for the second and the third book which are i, I had to sign a two-book deal with simon and schuster so I got to awesome. sit down and get, do all that work again. Oh, the whole thing again. <laughs> no, yeah, which is you know the story is all there. I just I, now right. I just got to continue with the story that I that I got down in the first book. I was going to ask because you brought up um, you you know you'd get up and you'd write early in the morning, and and you did that every day. As far as process goes for for writing, I'm always like really fascinated to see how everybody approaches this differently. And uh, I was listening to. I believe it was uh, Tim Ferriss's podcast, and he had on um, oh Stephen Pressfield, and uh, Stephen Pressfield was talking about a quote where he said, you know, asking about the same thing: Do you write just when inspiration hits, or do you have to stick to a schedule, like write every day at this time or whatever? And he said the quote goes, you know, I I write only when inspiration hits, but it just so happens that it hits every morning at nine a.m. Right. <laughs> and so I've always thought it's like, you know, you just the, the best way to kind of create or, or foster creativity is to like force yourself to do it almost. And was that, you know, it sounds like that was kind of maybe similar to what how you how you experienced yeah. it. Yeah. You know, it's funny. You, you said creativity and, and force. But what it is um, and, and it's uh, Willa Cather in the professor's house said uh, that desire is the magic element in creativity and mm. if you could if you could make an instrument invent an instrument that could measure desire you could then predict uh, achievement and and so if you've got the desire you know there's no force in it that's that's 
same thing the person was saying at 9 a.m. It just so happens when creativity hits or yeah. inspiration. You're if you have the desire, you just do it. I mean, and and outdoor anybody involved with the outdoors, 4 a.m. is no big deal. You know, you, you're right. always up early, and and yep. and and you you know, you why why. It's easier to sit at home, sleep in, watch the first football game, watch the second, watch the third, you know, have dinner and go to sleep. Maybe watch a movie before sleep. I mean, that's easier. So you want to get up at four in the morning. You say you're reading this Call Me Hunter in your camper on an elk hunt. <laughs> you know, you know, I doubt you're reading it at, you know, 10 in the morning. Well, the, you know, you're, you're, out, you're out in the mountains first yeah. thing. And, that, and, and it's the same thing for writing. You... Um, you know, it's the same discipline, but but the discipline comes because you have the desire to be disciplined, and and so yeah, it wasn't. I never had to force myself. I mean, it, it, I literally would wake up. Yes, I got to get back. You know, and and, yeah. and you're living in that world. It's yes, I have to go up on the mountain, and, and maybe I can hear the elk bugle, and I can mm-hmm. sneak up on them. And I mean, the desire to feel that morning mist, the coyote wind, listen to it. You know, as the birds, you know, start to chirp and call and the and the you know dawn starts to break i mean it, it's that's that i guess that's the payback you know that's the you know but but it's the motivation that uh, that comes in the beginning desire and desire is is what causes motivation so i never i never had any trouble with that and i i think there's you know a very wise fellow once told me that the the difference between writers and uh, everyone else is writers write. Mm. So, so many people want to write a novel, and they'll start write a page or two. But, but writers don't do that. They continue Hemingway. I mean, he wrote every morning till ten, yep. I think, before he had his first gin and tonic. And, <laughs> and you know, he, and it didn't matter if it's good or not. I, th- I can't remember yep. how many words he said he wrote four thousand words or two thousand words. Every had to write it. Yeah. And and, um, and that that's you, you you have to write it. Like I say, I would sometimes write something and then spend the next three sessions of writing, three days of rewriting what I wrote because it was kind of crappy. Yeah. So, so you get it just right, but you know, then you're, I'm always trying to add to that as well, but you can't go on to the next and to rewrite something is the same thing as writing. You're spending your time, you know, at that computer word processor. And, and um, if you do that every day for six months, for, you know, eight hours, Mm-hmm. That's a lot of writing. It's a lot of it's pages. Lot. You can do a two thousand word article every day. Well, six months, you know, do do the calculations. You've got three hundred page article, or three three, what is it? Thirty thousand hundred three hundred thousand word article at the end of that six months. I mean, that's a lot. Yeah, like you, you can, you know, but you have to do it. And you then just the refining it. of the skill over that amount of time too. Like you're just a much better writer and self-editor at that point anyways just from spending so much time doing it yeah you know that that <clears throat> I, i've written over a thousand articles for hunting magazines mm-hmm. and i've written three other four other books that are you know just hunting magazine article yep. oriented short stories the craft and the skill it takes to write you know you can't hone it within one novel yeah unless you're some kind of uber talented genius you know like i wrote another novel back about 90 90 or somewhere in there um called the lordly and i you know i picked it up actually yesterday i, I you know it's 
and I, I had it all transcribed onto a format I could, it, but it was pretty bad. You know, like the, I, my, I did, hadn't honed the skill yet. Mm. And I you know, obviously didn't have a story to tell, so I was telling somebody else's story, you know, and, it, and it's, it didn't get better by the end of the novel, you know, reading it now a second time. Um, I don't think I don't I don't think you could hone the craft by inside the, that six month period. I think you sure. you have to you have to pay your dues and you have to write and write and write and write and write before you're ready to write something that's good. Yeah, you know, and and I and then there will be people who say, "Well, I'm 30 and I want to write or 25 and I'm going to write the next great American novel." <laughs> yes, 100. percent There's people that just have the skill, the talent. The ability, but you know the rest of us proletariat have to actually, you know, get out there and <laughs> shovel and, and, <laughs> right. and dig the basement, you know, before we can put a foundation wall up. Yeah, and, you know, other people just sort of, you know, they build it without ever have to do any of the hard work. Uh, it reminds me when you brought up Hemingway. He's got like one of my favorite quotes about writing. Where he, I, and I'll, I'll paraphrase it because you know I can't remember the exact way he words it, but it, it says you know there's nothing to writing; you just have to sit down at the typewriter and bleed, and yeah. like and that's pretty yeah. much exactly yeah, what you're it. talking about. Yeah, that's exactly right. You <laughs> yeah. just have to do it, and, and yeah. you, uh, yeah, and and then you know, and then you know, the bleeding part, um, you've got to put it out there for the world to read it. Yeah, and if you're thin-skinned, and I mean, this is your baby. You know, you yeah. created this out of here. You know, I mean, it's one thing to write someone else's story, and there's a lot of novels that are based on other people's stories, but to to write your own story creatively, mm -hmm. and you can't go. This is somebody else. Oh, that guy's life wasn't that interesting, so it's not my fault. And it's not just technical writing. You're sure. actually, you know, this is your heart and soul, like mm -hmm. your blood. Is going into this, and and now people are going to read it. So you know, do they, you know, they, they can lambaste you, and they can do it on your shoulders. Your work, you know, that I mean, every critic that's ever existed that's a negative type critic, you know, they're doing it on the backs of people that actually did the work. Yeah. And they're, the, what are they doing? They're trying to tear down something that someone created, and and so that's easy. You know, that's that's easy. I mean, every negative critic is going, oh, you know, I'll get that guy now, you know, that is listening. Mm -hmm. But uh, but the truth is, when it goes out in the public and they're reading it, you, you better be prepared for, I don't like it. You know, I don't like this. I, there's, yep. I, I mean, I, I've, <laughs> I've been at the crosshairs many times of uh, various groups and organizations and people with ideologies that are different than what I believe. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, I mean, I've got pretty thick skins, but, you know, so I can read these things. But, I, you know, I read a review on the ARC the other day and someone, a critic, said, um, you know, and in the book about, I don't know, 60 pages in, there's the, the protagonist, a young lady, 26 mm -hmm. years old, was talking about someone else in her office. Well, this is a fictional novel. And she's, she's saying, you know, he, you know, he's an insipid millennial an insipid, gender-confused millennial with a man bun. You know, that's her opinion of her. You know, this is a fictional character giving a fictional opinion about a fictional character. <laughs> right. and, and, and I know the story. Yes. Like, I know what happens, uh, you know, to in, in the end. And not mm -hmm. in the first novel. It's, you know, it, this is all, it's already in the outline for the second one. Mm -hmm. You know, she's wrong. 
I'm giving it away, but yeah, you know, she's wrong. And how can you learn if you don't accept that there could be, you know, mistakes? You have to. Yeah. You have. To, this is the point. You you make you have an opinion. You have your ideology. You just believe this, but something happens that that makes you realize, oh, I was wrong. I was I was an opinion an opinionated, intolerant, you know, bigot, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. sexist, racist, and I was wrong. Now mm-hmm. I have to open my mind and say, okay, and accept and, and apologize and you know, but you have to you know, if you never let that I guess lower sensibilities come out in a character, you can't correct it. You can't yeah. make a point about that tolerance is better than that opinion. You know, it's wrong. It's not right. It's it's it wasn't evil. It's just that yeah. person's opinion. But but this critic, there they gave it a one star or no rating or something. Said I read to that line and I will never read a novel that has that line. You know that said would say something. A character would say something <laughs> like that. It's like wow like you know like you want to talk about intolerance i was this, just gonna that, say thin-skinned yeah oh, like they're they're they you know and it's cognitive dissonance for them to accept that that even a fictional character could say mm-hmm. something that offends them and so they you know they so, but anyway so when back to the bleeding part yeah. you have to be able to i mean look at that and go well, holy cow you know i, I really like, yeah. but it is and 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 not take it personally and say that that person i'm i'm, I'm inadequate i'm you know i don't have any you know, i shouldn't have any self-confidence you have to still maintain that that um your wholeness without letting those people take chunks of you and even though it's your baby they're throwing stones at you know so it, it's that's the bleeding part for me so it was there any difference between this as as a project where you're, you know, you're putting out there something that you've worked on and, you know, obviously you say you've got thick skin and can handle this kind of stuff, but was there something different about this versus all of the other projects and things that you've done in the past, like the TV shows and all that kind of stuff? Was there anything different about this particularly in that regard? Maybe not that it's, it, it, maybe it feels different when somebody gives a response to or something like that. Was there any of that with this? You you know, what's different about it is I'm, I'm trying to, this book is not designed for specifically for the hunting world or the outdoor world. It's designed for mainstream. And, and so yeah. the difference on this one is, you know, when I'm already catering to our core audience, yeah, I'm not, I mean, whatever, I've been doing this for 40 years in our world and, and okay, you know, go ahead cheap shot me I, you, know, you don't like whatever i did on tv or you think the cowboy hat's stupid or you think i'm old it doesn't you know whatever you know that's just this quack 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 it's, it doesn't even i don't worry about that um and it's because i've lived that life and I, it's this one the difference on the criticism is i i am trying i flip the stereotypes on this the the uh, protagonist is a young lady not you know not a um not a, not a big rough outdoors guy. Uh, mm-hmm. The uh, the uh, antihero is an older hunter, becomes a hunter in the book. So he's a hunter, but very philosophical and spiritual mm-hmm. about the hunting that he does. And and there's no nothing gets killed in the book at all. But but you know he talks about that, or discovers it as in the later part of his life. The 
the um, villain is an animal rights activist. So, so, and and I've, uh, you know, I've twisted it so that yes, of course, if you're, you know, if you're out to that side of the, you know, the this, this um, villain starts off as being, you know, not likable, but at least yes, I agree with him on this and I agree with him on that. But then you find out just how evil the guy really, mm, really yeah. is. Suddenly you've related to that, but this is what comes with it. <laughs> well, not, you know, but now you've got to hate his ideology. Uh, but you can't, you because know, you believe in the ideology. But <laughs> right. then the, you know the the uh, antihero is is coming at you from another side, and suddenly you hated him from the beginning. But now, wait a minute, you know he actually stands for what's good and, mm. and right, and and so you know I've twisted that. So criticism, you know, like someone like that that's so intolerant, that critic that won't even read past a line because it's it's a character in a book that offends them. You know, the if if people in the mainstream don't get a chance to read this book, you know, I, I think it'll be a disservice a to them if they're readers. If they like reading, uh, they're going to miss out. You know, that's their loss. Mm -hmm. But also, it, it's our loss in the outdoor world because it it gives us a voice to to show that uh, you know what we're not all louts that you have a stereotype as we don't walk yeah. into rooms spit on the floor we, you know we we have a baseball cap on with an elk antler and we have a cowboy hat on and mm -hmm. you know or whatever a primos <laughs> necky thingy you know i mean that's yeah we don't dress like you but you know what lots of people in the world don't dress like you either mm. you know are you intolerant of them as well i don't speak like you either you know i talk about the rut and and getting out there yeah. and the you know Okay, so we're almost speaking a different language as well, but there's many people who speak a different language than you. Are you intolerant of them as well? Right. My spirituality, my cathedral is the outdoors. You know, that doesn't fit in with your, your cathedral is downtown, you know, Los Angeles, New York City, mm -hmm. Rodeo Drive, you know, Toronto, Fifth and Bluer or whatever. Mm -hmm. You know, Saks Avenue is your, you know, so we're different again. But there's many people that, you know, they pray, and, and show reverence to edifices that are different than what you do. So are you intolerant about them as well? So, so I, the purpose of this whole novel, honestly, in the, in the, when you distill it right down to the, to the essence of the novel, is to reach out to mainstream with, and show that, yeah, we can actually put a sentence together. And, and we do have a spirituality. We, we do have, you know, the higher sensibilities and, and um, we're articulate and look, we're yeah. in your world and, and we can do this. And and I think, I'm hoping that, that something like this will be a catalyst. Jack Carr has already started. You know, his character's not exactly politically correct. You know, it's toxic masculinity. Yeah. And it's, he's a hunter, use a bow and arrow. And mm -hmm. um, he's already cracked the door open. Hopefully this novel will open it a little bit more and also show you know, ultimately it's about money. So if the, if the publishers can make money, you know, they, if we can buy it as hunters, if every hunter goes out and buys every Jack Carr book and mm -hmm. buys this book, there will be more. They will allow more of us to get out there. And, and they, I'm not saying them specifically, but our message has been hijacked for, since the early 60s. Mm. And we haven't, we just, we've just been attacked, attacked, stereotyped and, and, you know, before that, Hemingway and Ruark, they were highly regarded. I mean, Ruark was in like 90,000 newspapers. 
you know, that, you know, he, Hemingway was Hemingway. Yeah. And then for whatever reason, you know, that pendulum just goes this way and that way. And, and um, it's time for it to swing back because it's just gone a little too far where they're vilifying and marginalizing people like you, like me. And we know family people, good people that, you know, honorable that are, you know, believe in patriotism and, and, uh, you know, stand up for right and wrong chivalry. These are things we, we believe in. And yeah, they're maybe not politically correct nowadays to open a door for a lady, but I, you know, my wife, Louise, never opened a door in our entire 39 year relationship. Mm-hmm. And that's not because I was, you know, looking down at her and think she wasn't capable of opening the door. Of course she was. It's not that it's, it's my way of showing respect. Mm. And, and, you know, I, we just, we haven't been allowed, especially in the last few years, um, to, to tell that story at all. So th- this, I'm hoping that yeah. this novel will reach. So back to your original, is there anything different about this? Well, yeah. It's a lot different because I write a hunting article. I know there, there'll be guys, you know, that guy doesn't really do that. He doesn't walk the walk or, you know, that's just, you know, politics of envy. But but this one is different. So, so yeah, the process or the what happens to it is is really important to me. And, and the if it's not given the opportunity to get out into those hands because they're controlling the distribution of our messaging, yeah. Even in a form that they actually recognize as, as something and, and, you know, they respect. I mean, that, I think that would be a, a sad thing. So so there is, I think there's a lot more writing on this. And that's why I've, I've asked all the hunters, support it. Just buy it. Even if you don't mm-hmm. want to read it, buy it. Send it off to your grandmother. Not because I'm making money. Believe me, I make more money doing a lot of other things in my life than getting a dollar fifty an hour writing for you know, <laughs> six months and taking four years to get a project actually complete. <laughs> You know, so so it's not about the money, and it honestly isn't. But it, but it is about giving us an opportunity as hunters to change the perception in the you know mainstream media, and that eighty percent of the population that doesn't hunt, but you know they're not anti-hunters, not an right. animal rights activists, and they're you know they're just not outdoor people. But but you know if we reach them with a message, I just, like I say, it's important that we uh, you know, support it. You yeah, know, just like we all support Jacques Carr and all his novels. Every one of us should have every one of his novels lined mm-hmm. up, even if you never read. You know, and we're not always the best readers. You know, <laughs> audio books we're a little better at, but uh, <laughs> right. but you know, they, as long as everybody buys it, I think it'll make a a big difference. Then they have they can't ignore it. Can't ignore our message. And you have, uh, you know, and you and you talk about changing or beginning to change the perception of of the group outdoorsmen hunters right and the last few years like you mentioned i mean maybe 10 20 maybe more it's been pretty swung the pendulum far one direction and do you sense even with this this book like in other mediums and channels because you do the tv stuff you have all these other projects that you do do you sense it at all where it's maybe kind of starting to come back that way anyways and so this is like the perfect time timing wise for like this type of book where maybe we're it's softening a little bit or starting to come back down and go the other way already. Yeah. hundred percent. hundred percent. I mean, the, the uh, there, there's quite a trend. What is it? Manhood, you know, is whatever the countries yeah. are using out, out, out East and the, and the big urban centers. I mean, they're, I mean, 
I, I'm not I'm not judging, and I, I'm not saying what's right or what's wrong, but but you know, there's also kind of what's natural and and what makes common sense for a lot of us. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean it is common sense for everybody. It doesn't mean it is natural for everybody else. But there there's there's a good swath out there that that I think, yeah, okay, we don't we're, we were maybe not the most vociferous in our in voicing our opinions. You know, we're not out there with placards and and you know bonking people on the head and doing whatever you know activists that have you know promulgating their their ideologies. We we don't do that. We kind of just live and yeah. let live and 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 I think you know there's been a dearth of of actual product for us that we can relate to. You know, there's a lot out way out in the each wing, but there's nothing in the sure. kind of middle. And and let's face it, a bell curve pretty well covers everything in this planet. You know, mm-hmm. if there's too much out here, then it's, you know, you're going to end up being a demand for things that are out here. Well, if you go mm-hmm. too far out here, then there's a demand for this. And and the, the, it is truly, uh, you know, a social pendulum that swings back. And it, it, I don't know what the terms are, 60 years? Yeah. Yeah, they're probably speeding up. You know, we're probably going to get into a, do, 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 you know, I, I don't know. But uh, but I, I, I think absolutely there's... Um, there is a movement, you know, the field to table movement has, has uh, people realize if you're going to, you know, stuff your pie hole, you might as well have things that are organic. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, hunters, fishermen, yeah. I mean, outdoors people, gardeners, farmers, ranchers. I mean, <laughs> yeah, guess what? We've been saying <laughs> that for a long, long time. Yeah. You know, let, let's, let's, you know, this is your temple, you know, mm-hmm. and, and Nowadays, we, we really, especially with all the crap that's, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm sitting here with a plastic thing in front of me and, you know, all kinds of finishes on this stuff, you know, like those are, I'm breathing that crap. You know, yeah. it's, it, and, and we, yeah, it made our life easier, but if we're also adding to it with a whole bunch of processed crap, you know, going down the gullet, it's, mm-hmm. you know, so, so I think people realize that. And in the cities, it's very difficult for them in the urban centers to... To, to realize that goal, but it's not difficult for us in, out in the rural areas to, to do it. And but I think the people in the city are starting to look at us and say, okay, yeah, maybe they dress weird. <laughs> what a weird hat that guy wears, <laughs> you know. But it's there. Um, I think there's definitely more tolerance, you know, mm-hmm. which is wonderful because you know the world's not that big a place anymore, and eight billion of us. We better start learning to get along and tolerate, you know, your point of view, my point of view, his point of view, their point of view, its point of view, whatever. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. We, we just have to start being more tolerant. And, I, and, I, and so I think there's people are starting to realize that. I, you know, I hope, you know, I hope. Mm-hmm. I'm still, part, and that, you know, I, I talking about our countries, Canada, the United States. It's a big world out there that not everybody's doing that at this point. You know, there, there's places that it's not happening. You know, I mean, people, places where it's still like the dark ages, you know, usually autocratic, either communist or fascist, you know, too much control. Yeah. People that circle, bell curve, just wrap the ends around, and that's where they're the same. You know, you just, yeah. bell curve is probably not the best, actually. I just designed a new one. It should be <laughs> like this and like that. Loop you know, all the way back the around. Same. If yes. you're this way, that way, if you're that extreme, you're the same. So, yeah, I think, I think there's... Uh, greater acceptance for sure and people like joe rogan i mean look what he's done you know he, he's been huge 
biggest reach of anybody, and he says it. I'm a hunter. I'm yeah. a hunter, and I like you know I like controlling what goes in my mouth. Mm-hmm. Steve Ranella, another one, great. Uh, Cam Haynes. These guys are they're making a, a big impact in mainstream, and because their reach is so great. Yeah. So so yeah, for sure. Think, I, you know, I, I I think it's undeniable that there's you know there's still backwards people that think this is the 1990s and that you know they sh- they don't want to look at the truth that right you know, hunting is a great conservation tool around the world until you address poverty it's the best solution right now because you can't turn everything into a park and people live there right you know, they have goats and cows and you you can't just say move out because i'm making this a park so okay well it's a park well now there's lions eating my goats and cows and even my children well you know hunting solves a lot of that money comes into the yeah. community. There are new wells, schools. They can build a tiny little hospital, bring in a, a doctor instead of an itinerant nurse that comes by every two weeks. Um, you know, hunting solves the economic problems that the people have. So, so again, I think there's people are they're starting to look at it and say, well, that that's just common sense and reality. So again, that helps shift the the perception. The the international like you know in those in those third world type countries was the example that I like immediately thought of when you were when you were given that example also because those areas where like like you said like lions like you can't just take something that people use for their own you know resources for however many hundreds or maybe thousands of years, right? And then all of a sudden it's like, well, now it's fenced off as a park to protect this animal. But they don't think of what's the next step of the ramifications that happen because of that, where now you're pushing these animals into these places they aren't, or, you know, there's animals coming in to these places that weren't before. Like you're, you're upsetting the entire ecosystem with it. So it's interesting to see, like, we need to just be thinking, one to two to five steps farther down the line to be able to articulate that be like well look that's maybe not a terrible idea but if you do that this is what's going to happen and that's bad you know and it seems like that's what maybe isn't happening as much in a lot of those instances yeah well again it's knee-jerk reactions yeah you know solutions that are myopic i mean they, yeah. they they're only this far out out what happens to, okay what are you gonna do with the people you know you want the lions there lions are hungry they the person's goat mm-hmm. but you don't want them to get any money for someone else killing the lion but they can't have the lion killing their next goat because the family's going to starve what are they going to do they're going to poison the lion they're going to poison not just that lion they're going to poison every oh. lion right but if if you make the lion their cash crop i mean it's a terrible thing to put it that way but sure. but if, if you make that lion worth a hundred thousand dollars they're going to look after the lion and the lion's family Mm-hmm. And yes, one lion will die, but the rest are going to be alive. And it usually, you know, with good management and conservation, you take the lion that's beyond breeding age that's actually, you know, just taking resources yeah. away from the, the real viable population that's breeding mm-hmm. and continuing to increase numbers. So so you, we have to look at the wildlife in places like that. Uh, you have to give it to the people yeah, and let them <clears throat> raise raise the lions, not not in a pen, but... Sure. Steward over the lions. Steward over the antelope. You know, because they would rather have the lion killing the antelope. So if there's lots of antelope, they get lots mm-hmm. of lions, mm-hmm. and their goats and cows are still okay. You know, it, it's it, give it back. I Ojido is down in uh, Mexico. That's what they're doing. Your areas becoming traditional lands. Uh, I mean, all over the world, it's happening. Australia, uh, up in the Arctic. I mean, it, 
and it's not about Namibia. Some of the most successful programs where the, you know, tribal, I use that word, mm-hmm. not, not disrespectfully, but they, you know, the people in the area manage the wildlife. <clears throat> it becomes their, their, their herds, their flock. Mm-hmm. You know, they steward over that. And they, yes, an elephant gets killed, but they get the meat from the elephant and they were going to kill it anyway to sell the ivory for whatever. Right. And they get a hundred times more than they would have got for selling that, you know, little whatever ivory it is. Yeah. And and they get the meat anyway. Yep. You know, so so yes, they're gonna look after those elephants. And it's common sense, but but and I think people, like I say, are starting to see that. They're starting to accept, well, I don't like hunting, I don't want to see an elephant killed. On the other hand, I get that if you don't, they're gonna kill all the elephants because they're trampling their crops. Yep. They'll kill them all. And they'll kill them all for the ivory for the ten dollars they're gonna get a pound or whatever. Um so so they're you know, the reality is you, you cannot have an ideology um, about the wildlife in, in places like that. You can't have your ideology, I hate hunting and I hate hunters, so I'm going to stop them. Mm. It doesn't matter the cost to the wildlife. You know, that's not my concern. I want to stop those guys because they're getting pleasure. You know, they, they, they have this warped, mutated vision of what we do in the wildlands, right. thinking we're out there to kill something. We get a joy from that. It's, it's like, that, that's sad. Yeah. You know, we don't, we don't, there's no joy in killing something. You know, there's a joy in the accomplishment of, of the effort that it took, the, the training that you had, the skills you had to hone, the, you know, fresh air, the exercise you're getting, the lifestyle that you're living, the self-reliance that you're gaining from this. You know, that's what hunting's about. The kill, we don't do it to kill. I think it's Ortega de Gasset, the Spanish philosopher that said, you know, I don't, I don't hunt to kill. I kill to have hunted. Mm. And, and he's bingo, you know, like that's, yeah. but people have to let go of their ideologies because they'll love those animals to death if they don't get practical in their, in their perception of what's going on over there and, and think that, you know, just by stopping hunting, I've stopped the killing of an elephant, that you've saved the elephants. No, you haven't. You've, you've actually given the other elephants a death sentence. You've yeah. given the lions a death sentence. Because the people are not going to put up with them over there, and, and, and you know, yeah, you got rid of the hunters, you know, great. But what is your real goal in this? And I think that's where there's, that's where the dialogue will eventually have to take us, and we'll have to look at and say, well, you want the same thing I do, more wildlife, mm. right? That's what we want. Okay, how do we do that? You want to make a park, but you can't kick all these people out. You can't get rid of their cows and their sheep, and they, you know, they're growing their mattock there. You can't. You can't kick everybody out to make your park, so they're going to have to live there. Well, now there's lions and antelope eating and elephants stomping their thing. What are you going to do? Mm. You know, it's not practical. It's a good idea, but it loves the animal to death because they're going to kill them all. They're going to kill. You think they're going to kill a goat when they go kill an antelope or snare an antelope? No, that's their wealth. But if the antelope's worth a hundred goats, they're going to let you shoot the antelope, take the money, go buy a hundred goats. I mean, right. and and you can't. You you have to address the, the population issue poverty and and if we want more wildlife we need to get together and realize that's you want it i want it okay yes we come from opposite spectrums but we want the same thing okay how can we affect that you know and 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 this is a good tool to make that happen even though you find it reprehensible and repugnant you know because of your ideology you, you know what do you want you want more wildlife or you want to get rid of hunters so so i i think eventually we're going to end up there and there's younger people you know, like, look at you. I mean, you know, I'm a lot older and my generation can't change that easily anymore, but you guys are making a difference. 
you're, you're changing that. I mean, it, look, pretty cool. Yeah. You know, and I mean, someone sitting in the urban center, you know, looking at that going, I'm, I'm in my suit and tie and I go to my office every day on the 23rd story and COVID hits and now it's, a, you know, I'm entombed in my penthouse suite. I can't leave it. I can't get food. There's no, you know, there's no mm. supply lines, supply chains busted. I mean, it's a tomb. You know, what are you going to do? You're going to look, they look at you and go, hmm, hmm, <laughs> you know. Looks useful. That's, that's, yeah. <laughs> you know, may, maybe I want to reconsider my ideologies. Maybe <laughs> right. not so bad. And, and it's going to happen. You know, yeah. it's going to, it's organic. It's going to happen. And back to the book, those kind of things, everything yeah. you're talking right now, us talking, this, this makes a difference every little bit. Maybe we'll reach one person out there. I, oh, I would love who's ever, that one person that's listening to this, that, this gave them a, a, a different perspective on what we do and how we do it and, and who we are in a positive way. I'd love to you know, reach out to me on social media. Yeah. DM me, whoever, whoever you are out there listening. Because, and and tell, tell me, did it work? Did it, are, you, is, am, are we on, bang on here? Are we hitting that nail on the head? But, but I, I do believe that there's, you know, I do believe that there's, um, yeah, hope, hope. Because the truth is the truth. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you can only color it and, and shade it and spin it, you know, so long before people realize, well, it's not, there's no lions there now. Yeah. There, what happened to the lions? Well, there's no hunting. Well, guess what? There's no lions. Wasn't the purpose to have more lions. Yep. So, so yeah, yeah, reality is reality, you, you know, and, and it, truth comes out eventually. We've got uh, a few minutes here before I let you go, and I want to give you the chance to, you know, we've been talking about the book, and uh, comes out in a couple of weeks. Public, I believe you can still pre-order it now. Um, yeah. I wanted to ask, because, you know, I, I ask all the guys that are hunter guys and outdoors guys when they come on the show, and you've got a... a incredible swath of stories here to choose from, I imagine, in your life. Do you have a favorite hunt that you ever went on, like that you consider to be, this was my favorite hunting experience? Yeah. I, I, experience, no. Yeah. Plural experiences, mm -hmm. yes. Anything with my family. Hmm. Yeah, my dad, I was there, Eva was there too for his last whitetail. You know, I guided him personally to his last moose at 79 years of age. Took him to Africa for the first time when he was 76. You know, when he, he got his his first um, kudu, I think was the first animal he got. Uh, and, and I, you know, it was a long stalk. And I said, boy, that took a long time. He said, yeah, it took me 76 years. <laughs> it, it's like, oh, man. You know, like, he, he, I grew up in a trailer park. We had no money, you know, and dad and mom, when I was young, I mean, it, it was conversation every day was whether he'd get laid off and whether we'd be able to afford to, when we finally did buy a house, you know, I mean, that's how he lived. It took 76 years mm -hmm. for him to get there to be able to take that shot at the kudu. You know, those are, you know, the most important hunts. Evie's first whitetail, you know, her first bear, our son's first whitetail, his first bear. I mean, the, you know, my father-in-law, Len, the, the, you know, Evie on her first big game animal was a a warthog over in Africa, and my wife, who Louise, you know, rest in peace. She um, she was there, and she was never a hunter. I mean, mm -hmm. she would literally take flies and let them go outside the house. And, <laughs> I mean, we were total opposites. You know, beauty beast, lady tramp, 
but she was there because she knew that Eva wanted to try this, you know, wanted to try this outdoor lifestyle, field to table living. And, and um, you know, Louise, Louise, God bless her, was there. You know, I mean, that, you know, how can any other hunt be significant compared yeah. to that? Yeah. You know, fam family, 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 you know, that's, and, and, you know, then next in line is, is friends. You yep. know, the camaraderie you share, that's a such a huge part of it. And it probably goes back to ancient times when maybe we lived in a cave and we were looking after each other and, uh, you know, so you'd be together and successful on a hunt. We were going to survive for another month or week or depending mm -hmm. how many were in the cave. You know, it depends how big an animal. If it was my cousin Guy getting it, we probably would have lived for maybe the next day. You know, <laughs> if I was getting it, you know, but, but these are, this is what it's about. Yeah. You know, camaraderie, friendship, family, respect. You know, so those are the hunts, not not the size of the animal, one inch mm -hmm. bigger. Oh, I got this big. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, it's great. I think it's great. You know, and I'm, I think selective hunting is, is a, is the way to go for me personally i get a lot of opportunity and i don't eat you know as much as i used to I don't have to provide for a family as big as it was and uh, you know they're all moved on and you know providing for themselves now but you know still friends but but size of the antler record book sure. you know, whatever got my limit of ducks or it, those hunts you know they just pale in comparison to the hunts with any of my hunts so experiences favorite experiences or, or any any hunts with family members. I love it. Well, Jim, I really had a pleasure talking to you today. I really appreciate you making time. The book, Call Me Hunter, comes out October 17th. I uh, can still pre-order it on Amazon and anywhere else, correct? Correct, yeah. They, I just got the, um, the word today that the pre-orders have hit 2,000, which is... Awesome. Yeah, it's really big for, for a, a first time novelist you know mm -hmm. the, the debut novel um I, nothing would make me happier if we can hit the because this all becomes part of the bestseller list computations mm -hmm. and and you know it's it's not it's it's this novel switched the stereotype so yeah so there are going to be a lot of resistance against getting this one onto the onto the bestseller list so yeah if everybody goes and pre-orders that's listening right now that would be awesome um a, you'll like the book if you're a reader. B, whoever you give it to for Christmas will like it if they are readers. And C, it, it's going to help the, uh, the whole hunting world, the cause, the perception of hunters. It'll be a more positive thing. So, yeah, if everybody goes out and pre-orders right now, that would be awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Jim, for making the time. I really appreciate it. It was, it was awesome talking to you today. Yeah, my pleasure. It was an honor.